We're in the fourth week of homeschool now, and things have not improved. I'm still hoping it's just a matter of getting used to it. We're using an actual homeschool curriculum this year, which I find ironic given public schools' general antipathy to homeschooling in the past. Things sure are goofy these days, and in fact, the woke crowd revealed their true colors just a few days ago in the form of a social studies lesson that didn't pass the thought police muster. But that's for the next episode. There isn't a consistent look to the courses, and indeed many of us in the district are having trouble navigating a couple of them, science and social studies particularly. We're waiting on special guidance from the company as to how to get to what we're supposed to be covering in any given lesson. Math seems to be stuck on place values, something any normal fifth grader is already familiar with. It's like studying one plus one for a month. And the English lessons each day are supposed to take about 90 minutes to complete. We're averaging around two hours, just for English. I guess that's learning, online style. Speaking of online, I did notice that a Supreme Court justice died. Well, that happens once in a while. I wasn't even going to mention it, except to maybe say that Justice Ginsburg, I've always heard, was a nice person, and I'm very sorry for her family. I paid just enough attention to social media to notice that among my friends, there was a very short period of time, a day or so, of real emotional outpouring. I think some of these people actually think they're going to end up in concentration camps. And while the genuflection was, I'm sure, genuine, it went away just as quickly as it appeared. What replaced it? Anger over the process of replacing Justice Ginsburg, of course, and the genuflection was equally genuine. Enough belaboring, and I certainly won't belabel the complete reversal both parties have made on the question of Supreme Court and appointments within some ambiguous time frame of a presidential election. I will say that I know of no rule, written or otherwise, that says a president stops being president simply because an election is coming up in some indefinite amount of time. I said that when Obama tried to appoint Merrick Garland, and I'm saying it now. What struck me about Justice Ginsburg's death, and a thought that kept creeping back into my mind, was that the second half of a great friendship had passed on. The other half? Justice Scalia who passed away in 2016. One ultra-liberal, one ultra-conservative. How could those two be friends? How does anyone today even fathom such a friendship? I've wondered that over the years, especially in law school, when I was actually having to read their decisions. I'm not a court watcher. Sometimes those folks seem like Supreme Court groupies to me, but that's not quite fair. They do serve a function, unlike those weirdos who make their living studying the British royal family. The Ginsburg-Scalia friendship wasn't a secret. It also didn't get much press. Why should it? Two people who worked together got along and a friendship formed. Happens all the time. But I noticed something else after Ginsburg died. A fair number of the emotional posts mentioned this friendship and asked the questions, how could they be friends and why can't the rest of us do the same anymore? I think I know why they could become friends and I'll get around to that in a minute. But I also think that a better question is this. Have any of us ever been friends? We all just seem to be disliking each other more and more, even as we hit the like button more and more. Take my sister, for example. She's a wonderful person, and we used to be very close. She's always been opinionated. So have I. She's left-wing. I'm not. I don't know how far left-wing she is, but I do know that she follows the pattern most people seem to these days, 
She talks over everyone else. Literally, she doesn't stop talking. So why were Scalia and Ginsburg able to be such good friends while disagreeing so radically? Easy. They didn't grow up with social media. They didn't grow up in the 24-hour news cycle that consists of little more than people shouting at each other. I have no idea how much they eventually engaged in online, but somehow I don't see either one of them having spent too much time sharing pictures of kittens riding Roombas. That sort of interaction with other people would have seemed strange to them, I think. I know that for my part it seems strange a lot of the time, and I consider myself in that group of people that has embraced social media hook, line, and sinker. I even laugh at myself now for how I acted when I opened my first Facebook account. Yes, I've had two. Long story. Anyway, when I first heard of it, I thought, what a good way to get back in touch with friends I haven't seen in years. It quickly became apparent how wrong I was. I used to chuckle and shake my head when I'd see a huge company like, say, Johnson & Johnson advertise its Facebook page. Like us on Facebook! So what happens when I do that? Do I get some free baby powder that a bunch of lawyers now say causes cancer? I know about the cancer because one of my Facebook friends used to constantly share memes to that effect. Well, no, I don't get any free powder. I'm not sure what I get. But the point of all that liking isn't what I get out of it. It's not what Johnson & Johnson gets out of it. It's all about what Facebook gets. A data point. Recently, I saw a movie on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It's all about how social media companies are perpetrating evil upon humans everywhere, whether wittingly or unwittingly. It's a documentary highlighting interviews with various social media powerhouses who are now trying to ease their consciences over what they've wrought by warning us to keep it away from kids. And it's interspersed with small dramatizations showing what will happen if we don't keep it away from kids. Thing is, even though these uber-rich geniuses are just trying to sleep again at night, they make some good points. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing here. If you have Netflix, I, I do encourage you to watch it. But to summarize as best I can, quickly, social media, at least once it's monetized, operates for one purpose. To get our eyes on advertising in a measurable way. How do they do that? Algorithms. That's where the genius part comes in. An algorithm is nothing more than a set of steps designed to solve a problem. But they can be as complicated as they need to be to get the job done, and the ones used by social media giants are complicated indeed. And for all of Mark Zuckerberg's progressivism, indeed for all of these people's supposed good intentions, they couldn't care less what you click on. They get paid any which way. If I could boil it down to essentials, I'd do it this way. They were trying to make us all click on as much as we possibly could, as fast as they could possibly make us click. But they didn't take into account why we click on what we click on. And in making us click without a care in the world on their part as to why, we are constantly being reinforced in what we're interested in to the point that we cannot see anything else. I mean that in the literal sense. It's not that we're unwilling to see the other side. We are and always have been, but that's not the issue here. On social media, when we hit the bar, we get our food pellet. But now, running through the maze doesn't feel like as much work as it used to. Eventually, it doesn't feel like work at all, and our feeds flat out don't display anything the algorithms think we will avoid clicking on. In short, we've become radicalized.
We used to use this term in reference to people being transformed into jihadis and trying to blow up airplanes with their feet. Remember that? Look at things now and how we can't stand listening to opinions that aren't in complete lockstep with our own. Is there a comparison to be made? If you don't see a comparison, could it possibly be because you've been radicalized? I'm certainly willing to admit the possibility that I have been, and that makes me more angry than whatever it was I was radicalized about. The film provided an example of this. Remember Pizzagate? Personally, I'm sick and tired of seeing gate tacked onto the end of any word in order to make a conspiracy out of it, but in this case, maybe it kind of works. To wit, a guy walked into a pizza shop armed with a shotgun with the intent of releasing the children being held in the basement for the purpose of sex trafficking. Only there was no basement, and there were no children. He had come to be convinced that there were children in trouble at that location as a result of his social media meanderings. So it was alleged, anyway. It's easy to sit back and call him crazy. In part, he probably was. But how much longer is that going to be easy? We all have our limits. One of my social media friends, one I've known for real and for many years, bangs on more and more as time goes by, about a number of issues, and now he's tying it all together with post after post about going off the grid. I'm sure you've heard that term. Is he going crazy, or does he know something I don't? I can say that this is not the guy I once knew. And among all of this disturbing information, the film provides statistics to show something truly sad. Starting around 2011, the rate of young girls being admitted to hospitals with depression, anxiety, and self-destructive behavior cutting, for instance, spiked. And I mean it spiked. So did suicides among teenage girls. What's the significance of 2011? It was around then that social media started becoming available on mobile devices. Smartphones. Before that, you actually had to go to the trouble of sitting down in front of a computer to engage in the emoji mambo. When the smartphone hit, we could suddenly get our food pellets while crossing the street. What goes through the head of a teenage girl, I won't pretend to understand. But when I was a teenager, I was around lots of teenage girls, and I will venture to say that they haven't changed much. What has changed is the way they get their positive reinforcement and their negative feedback. They're bullying. And if their faces are constantly glued to their phones, they never get a break from it. No wonder so many of them wind up hopeless and start cutting themselves, or worse. And life isn't a TV show. Parents can't just sit their kids down, put their arm around them, and say everything is okay. Cue sentimental music, roll credits. If it was on the phone, there must be a good reason, right? People really do hate my guts. And that's not something a parent can fix just like that. People used to say the same thing about TV. Some people still do, but man, they're so 1990. Certainly, there are some things in common, and in fact, it's fair to say that the basic idea is the same. Television producers produce and disseminate content to entertain and inform. Okay, I guess. Not because they're just nice people who want to make the rest of us feel good or smart or fulfilled somehow. They want to make money. They need money to produce more content, and that's expensive. They also just want to be rich and powerful, like every other breathing human on the planet. That way, they can live in huge houses with garages full of expensive cars and finance their environmental conferences that they fly to on their private jets. See, I managed to work my bias in there. But I can think of one obvious and critical difference with TV, 
and one very important factor that the movie didn't mention. TV is a passive medium. Someone, somewhere, produces the content we watch and absorb, and that's it. Social media, on the other hand, is our chance to be part of the action, or maybe even the entire story. What wouldn't most people give to go viral? I don't know what else can explain the video of a kid jumping off a picnic bench into a carefully laid pile of barbed wire. Certainly I did dumb things when I was a kid, but they weren't done with the aim of putting video on the internet, and I felt I had a reasonable chance of success with my stunts. If you're staring at a pile of barbed wire from atop a picnic table and thinking to yourself it's possible there could be a good outcome to this, you need medical help. I recently saw an example of this need to be the story. One of my Facebook friends shared someone else's post. This person started out with a breathless, First, let me assure you that I'm okay. I'm all right. Turns out this person was handing out water bottles at a rest center set up during all the recent rioting. It even caught my eye, and I usually ignore these kinds of things. Turns out nothing happened. Literally nothing. She simply wrote at length about how frightened she was that every cop in the city would descend on their water station and kill everyone. None did. Apparently they didn't even see a cop. Or maybe there was something going on there I couldn't pick up. Maybe others see a story in there that I cannot. And if so, that points even more to the ultimate point of the movie. Our polarization. Our inability to see the other side, to acknowledge a different point of view, to simply shut up and listen once in a while. There's something to that. I mean, it makes sense if everything you click on social media, indeed all across the internet, and even the TV you choose to watch, those boxes next to your TV know what you're doing. If all of that reinforces exactly what you believe. Because each click of the mouse, and each click of the remote control, results in more of the same choice, suggested for you. Because you watched. This might interest you. You may know. Do those phrases sound familiar? If it's all designed to keep your eyes glued to that screen just a couple more minutes, then a click, then a couple more minutes, of course it's going to keep giving you places to go. It's all going to be something you've shown an interest in and ultimately something that validates you that lets you say, I am right. And it isn't long before you're wondering why the people you don't agree with can't see how right you are. It's so obvious, those idiots. And then how long is it before you're throwing Molotov cocktails yourself? Longer for some of us than for others, maybe, but we'll all get there sooner or later at this rate. I can see changes even in my relationships with people I've known for decades. And that includes my sister, who, as far as I know, doesn't have any close, regular contact with social media of any kind. She does watch the news. Is it possible that it's all one giant monolith, the meaning of which completely escapes us? I was once considering a career in journalism. I went a different way simply because my interests changed, but I studied enough to conclude for myself that the hallowed concept of objectivity is a myth. It doesn't exist today and many people lament that, but I don't think it ever existed. Whether or not any particular reporter or news outlet has a bias in any particular way is one thing, but the very basic decision of what news to cover is itself ultimately a slave to bias. There is no basic standard to determine what news is important and what news can be ignored. Sometimes it's a no-brainer, of course. 
the attacks of September 11, 2001, had to be covered. But day to day, this politician said that, that politician said this, even about the same subject matter. Which one gets on the air? Do either of them get on the air? What standard is there but bias? And I think it's worth noting that many news stories you see these days are really just lists of comments on social media. They're often not even comments from people you've heard of or noted experts in anything. Why should I care what Jennifer P. 182 of Jersey City, New Jersey, thinks about another coronavirus stimulus package? Spoiler alert, she's in favor of one and anyone who disagrees is a racist. Of course, the algorithm geniuses interviewed in The Social Dilemma never meant for any of this to come about. They thought they were just putting out a great product that would keep people in touch with each other, that would keep families together even as they lived a nation apart. That would make the world an even smaller, friendlier place. Misplaced optimism or bullshit? You be your own judge. I'm sure they feel better having spoken out about things, but to me it's a little like an interview with the guys who threw the piranha in the kiddie pool. We didn't think anyone would get hurt. And man, those bubbles were cool. So what do we do about it? Do we do anything? I always love it when people cry censorship every time Facebook fact-checks their post, or Twitter suddenly gets a conscience and deletes something it determines might be offensive. You have no First Amendment rights on social media. Not as things are now. They're private companies and therefore outside the scope of the U.S. Constitution. I'm sure a lot of people think that should change. One of the algorithm geniuses did make the cogent point that we regulate ads on radio and TV. There was once a big hullabaloo over ads running during Saturday morning cartoon shows. I don't even know if they still do Saturday morning cartoons, but basically a bunch of politicians thought kids, me at the time I guess, were being victimized by Mattel and all the rest of them trying to sell toys. Seems pretty innocent today, doesn't it? If you ask me, I think it was all just politicians responding to parents bitching about their kids constantly asking them to buy them stuff they saw on TV. How big a problem was that? I don't know. Seems to me parents can just say no, but some, at least, sought government intervention. As people are now with social media, we can at least be certain that social media isn't going away. It's too big. Too much money is at stake. So what do we do? Regulation wouldn't be unprecedented. TV and radio are heavily regulated. Cable TV, not so much, at least judging by the nudity, language, and sheer number of heads being lopped off by swords that you can see up and down the dial. But apart from normal laws regarding criminal conduct, fraud, etc., the internet isn't regulated. Can we regulate social media without regulating the internet at large? That's one big question. I'll say this, I've never seen a politician who could just stick to the point. And when the politicians finally do decide to regulate social media, it won't be long before they're once again talking about games. This time online games, online gambling, streaming, and ultimately bandwidth use generally. And once they sink their teeth in, those teeth are not coming back out. Because bandwidth isn't infinite. And it's unfair that some people hog it all to play games when other people need to research on Google so they can tell their doctor just what drug their kid should be taking and Google is being all, like, slow. One final thing I'd like to get on the record here. I am a free market kind of guy. I believe humanity works best in a free state. That doesn't mean I believe in a completely unregulated market, and any society has to have rules, of course. 
I don't advocate a ban on social media, and I don't believe people should just avoid it completely. Social media isn't all bad, not by a long shot. But right now, we all seem to be locked in some kind of slow death struggle. Big tech wants to make money, not in itself a bad or evil thing. And we ordinary humans are constantly looking for validation. That's a perfectly human trait and one that has a place in our survival. It's one of the cues we use to see if what we're doing is effective in any way. Peer pressure isn't always bad. It depends on the peers, I guess. The question is looming, I think. Should government step in? That's going to be a tough call. Because, again, once government steps in, it doesn't step out. But I believe we're going to be forced to make that decision, and I think it's coming soon. Or maybe, while we still have time, we can get hold of ourselves. Parents could be parents and make their kids put the screens down for a while. I know I could be a lot better about that. Maybe we should all put them down once in a while. My wife doesn't quite agree with this. In fact, she said, they're responsible for this. Why should I have to fix it? Let them fix it. She was speaking, of course, about the algorithm geniuses. Philosophically, I couldn't agree more. The problem I have is that they won't fix it. At least I don't trust them to fix it. I think if they tried, they'd lose sight once again of the larger consequences of what they do. If, in fact, they ever saw those consequences in the first place.